The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So for all our variety, our backgrounds, our passions, our preferences, our hobbies, our habits, there's one thing we all have in common, whether you're a Christian or not. We all want to be happy, and we want it bad, don't we? It's no new discovery, obviously. Pascal, 17th century philosopher, said this, all men seek happiness, he said. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. And then he said, the will never takes the least step but to this object. He's saying every choice you ever made, you made to make yourself happy. Sometimes you don't like all your options with your choices. Um, Sometimes we're pretty foolish about it. But every choice we ever make is toward our happiness. One author I read this week, he said, being born is like joining the great treasure hunt. And we're all on this desperate search to find what will satisfy us. We, We long to be thrilled, to be secure, to be included, to be recognized, to be connected, to be at peace, to be happy. So with that in mind, it almost seems strange to take in this final command of the Ten Commandments. And the first two words in Hebrew, they literally say, don't desire. Don't desire. We translate that rightly, I think. Do not covet. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, right away, I want you to notice, did you see? We should be struck by the claim that there's a moral factor to our desire to be happy. There's a moral factor to our desire to be happy. So in other words, there's a right way to pursue happiness and a wrong way. There are right things to be happy in and wrong things to be happy in. And so this is very challenging for us in our own cultural moment, right? What what does your culture tell you every day? Do what makes you happy. And so there's a deep assumption there, and you really ought to test it. The assumption that is that if it makes you happy, it must be right. In fact, our culture would tell you it would be wrong for you to not be authentic and follow your heart on happiness. But I think if we ponder that even just for a moment, do do we realize how ridiculous and dangerous that is? Have you ever had a strong desire you knew good and well would lead to utter chaos and destruction? I have. So, we dare not trust every inclination towards our happiness, right? You cannot trust every personal inclination towards your happiness. So maybe next we wonder, is this text then saying not to desire anything at all? Don't desire, don't desire anything at all. What do you think about that? Well, that would be more Buddhist than biblical, right? So as I understand it, Buddhism would see a strong desire as core to the human problem, We want things desperately, so we strive and fight for them. That causes suffering to a point. Is that true? 
Yeah, I think to, to a point the Bible would agree with that. And yet the Bible here differs in that the answer is not to stop desiring things. That's not the answer. One reason is because that's impossible. It goes against your very design. You were made to desire. Number two, it makes no sense of our scripture in context today. God is promising these former slaves, he's just rescued out of slavery, he's promised them a land of milk and honey. You ever just pondered that phrase for a moment? What's the baseline of everything you like to eat the most? Dairy with some sugar in it? Like, you want to go get ice cream? It's a desire, and you taste it, it's good, it it fulfills you. Think of what God is promising. Look at this text, Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you shall eat bread without scarcity, in which you'll lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. How does that sound? Does that sound like a good time? And you see, God's made us with a host of desires, and he loves to fulfill those desires. Such a good God. God is the one doing it, giving it. So the Bible's clear. It's good to desire good things in the right way. It's not wrong to want to be happy. How's this supposed to work? Well, look at 1 Timothy 6, 17. Such a helpful verse. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. A couple of things to point out. Who is it that richly provides us with everything to enjoy? God does. God gives good gifts. He makes us with desires and fills desires. Amazing. The danger, though, is not that you want to be happy. The danger is not that he gives you good things. The danger is that you might set your hope on riches. So now your deepest desire is this wealth or this money or this thing in this world. And and why is that so bad? One reason it's so bad, don't set your hopes on the, anybody remember? The uncertainty of riches. It's a bad investment, ultimately. What is God saying to you here? It won't finally make you happy. Instead, set your hope on God. Find God to be the source of your deepest satisfaction. So that gets us ready. We're concluding our series here on the Ten Commandments, and this last command of the, of the Ten is especially after our hearts, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, I can, we can see it when somebody else steals. We can feel it somebody else murders. We can hear it when somebody else talks. Who knows what's going on in your heart? 
Well, there'll be echoes of it. <clears throat> we'll see fruit of it in some ways. But when it comes down to this command, it really is between you, yourself, and your God. He sees what you want. And he's calling your heart. He's calling you to watch your heart and make sure the thing you want the most, the thing you delight in the most, is him. God demands here, telling us the right way to be happy, and he's loving and showing us the only way to be truly happy. It's delight in him. So I want to see four main things with you as we work through this together. Follow the same model we have with other commands. Number one, foundations of the command. Why is this so important? What are, the, what are the roots of this idea? Number two, applications of the command. This is what it means to obey it, and basically we're going to see all the ways we break it. <clears throat> Number three, the fulfillment of the command. Each of these commands is meant to point us to the beauty of Christ. So we want to see how he fulfills it. And then number four, if you love Jesus, you're going to want to follow him in keeping this command. What are some ways to follow him in keeping this command? So foundations, applications, fulfillment, ways to follow Jesus. First of all, foundations. Through the series, haven't we, over and over again, we've gone back to Genesis 1.27, remember that human beings are made in the image of God. That's so important because that means a transcendent God designed you, and that means his ways and his laws are good for you. They fit your design. So when you, you rebel, it's not going to end up in your happiness because you're going off of what you're made to be. To know his commands, to love him, to follow his commands, it's good for you. It fits your design. And so we hear in this command, part of being made in the image of God is that you are designed to be satisfied in him. You are made to be satisfied in the infinite, eternal God. You are to, fi you are to find your deepest needs met in his eternal sufficiency. The, uh, the old theologian Augustine said this. It's so good. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are what? Restless until they rest in you. Consider God's invitation to these rescued slaves. Psalm 81.10, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now look at this invitation. Open your mouth wide. For me, I get the image of a, of a baby bird in a nest. You ever seen a picture like that? It's just the mouth is so wide. It's, come on, drop the food in here. I'm hungry. Meet my desires. Feed me. And God here is saying, I'm the one who in my grace has chosen you. I've loved you. I've grabbed you to set me free. And I'm telling you, I want you to come to me for all of your deepest needs and desires. I will satisfy you. This is the only way to truly worship God. To be delighted in him and look to him for ultimate satisfaction. Because if you won't delight in him, guess what you are inevitably, absolutely going to do? You're going to try to be delighted in something else, and that other thing will become your functional God. Delight is at the core of worship. Look at the prayers of God's people. We're going to sing a song about this after the sermon. Psalm 90:14. What are we to pray? Satisfy us in the morning. 
Why do you think you need it in the morning? Because all day long, you're going to be longing to be satisfied. And if you don't set your heart in the right place, your day won't go the way it needs to go. Satisfy us in the morning with what? Your steadfast love. Let my heart find its rest, my peace in God and his love for me, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. If you find your satisfaction in the Lord, what happens to you all your days? Somehow, some way, you will rejoice and you will be glad. You're made to delight in God. C.S. Lewis was pondering the promises of Jesus, because Jesus talked like this all the time, right? It's not that he doesn't want you to have treasures. Jesus wants you to have treasures that last. He wants you to have treasures in heaven. So C.S. Lewis is pondering the promises of Jesus. Look at what Lewis said. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased, folks. We're designed to be satisfied in the Lord. Then you think of the flip side of the coin. Sin is a slavery of disordered desire. Remember the beginning of Genesis, right? Adam and Eve are put in that lavish garden, given everything they need to fulfill every desire. I mean, it's nothing but good, good, good. Satan enters the garden, and what's the nature of his temptation? Right? His first thing is God's not good. He's holding out on you. He wants to keep you from happiness. Do you realize that's the first lie, the first temptation? God won't satisfy you. He's not good. He wants to keep you from happiness. So because his, God's not good and his word's not true, replace him. Adam and Eve in that Genesis text literally coveted the fruit. They desired it. Satan had told them, you can be wise like God. You can be your own authority. Thrill yourself in your own pride. And so they bought the lie and they thought, we can be happy apart from God. And before they knew it, they're hiding in the bushes. They're ashamed. Did satisfaction apart from God, seeking that, did it end well? Does it bring joy in the end? No, it's ruinous. It brings despair. It brings death. It does not satisfy and ever since then, their story, that's our story, right? Look at Ephesians 2.3, just one example. Paul says that he's including himself, he's including every single human. He's talking to Christians who've repented of their sins. This was our past. This is who we were. We all once lived in the what? Passions of our flesh. Those are warped desires, wanting wrong things or wanting right things in the wrong way. We all once lived there, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we see that the core of sin is slavery to rebellious desires. We want 
the wrong things. We want the right things in the wrong way. And these desires so dominate us in our sin, it's as if we're dead to God because we have no delight in him and we're enslaved to our own selves. But of course, here's the good news, right? What does God do for his people? Slaves to evil desires. In his grace, he rescues them. He sets them free. Sets them free to have new hearts, new minds, to love the right things in the right way, to desire him as they ought. And so as we've said, these 10 commandments are what it looks like to get the slavery out of the slave. So this command, it ties together all the 10. Watch your heart. God is saying, don't harbor any desire in your heart stronger than your desire for me and my ways. God is saying, find your satisfaction in me alone. And so it's a bookend of the Ten Commandments. The first command, anybody remember? No other gods. Thou shalt not covet the Tenth Command. No other gods in your heart. You delight in him, ultimately. So if you obey the 10th command, it's because you're obeying the first command. If you obey the first command, the 10th command, you'll obey all the commands. So it's about right desires, satisfaction in God. That's the foundation of this command. We're made to delight in God. Now let's think of some applications of this command. Verse 17, Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Remember, command six to 10, focus on love for your neighbor. If you love the Lord your God, you're gonna love your neighbor as yourself. The commands describe what this love looks like. And so here, one way you've got to love your neighbor is to not covet your neighbor's stuff, relationships, circumstances, or even your neighbor herself or himself. Fight the over-desire that leads to things like envy. Do you know what envy is? I think we've all felt it. It's good to define it. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's situation. Anybody ever struggled with envy before? So we just want to be careful, right? The issue is not desire itself. It's over-desire. So mentioned here in this command was a house, spouse, uh, career success, possessions, anything in the circumstances. So, so let's ask, is it necessarily a bad thing to desire a house or a bigger house? No, not, at, not in the least. Is it a bad thing to desire a spouse? No. Children? No. A nicer car? No. A more productive career? No. None of these desires in themselves are necessarily evil. These are good things, and God gives them to many people in many ways. And let's remember that in this life, isn't it true? We will all have good desires that are somehow left unmet. You will have good desires that are somehow left unmet. Go ahead and embrace that. Put that in your mind. You will have good desires that are somehow left unmet. And let that just remind you as this world disappoints you, you were made for another world. I always long for that. It wasn't a bad desire. God, why didn't you give it to me? 
in some way, he will fulfill all your desires when you are with him, with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's okay to have a healthy desire. Sometimes we're not going to receive those desires or we see people who have these things we want in different ways. And then it's really easy, isn't it, to lean into over-desire. Over-desire, coveting, that's what it means. Don't over-desire. And so what does that look like, right? The heart says, I deserve this. I'm bitter that I don't have it. And I cannot be happy without it. That, that's how coveting feels. I deserve this. I'm bitter that I don't have it. I can't be happy without it. And of course, the world we live in doesn't help, right? What's every commercial doing? I mean, you didn't even know you wanted this until you saw the commercial. <laughs> you were content. And then you're like, I can't live without this thing. I can't, I must have it. Stirring up right? This desire. You deserve it. They'll even tell you that, won't they? You deserve it. You need it. You won't be happy without it. Oh, and then there's social media, the great machine of coveting. Because, right, it shows you how wonderful your life should be. It just shows you all the places you should be able to go, all the moments you should be able to have, all the meals This is how wonderful your life should be. And it shows you how happy everyone else is. And you compare yourself with this false idea of someone else's bliss. Notice the word false. If I just looked like that, if I just had that career, if I was just noticed like that, if I just went to that place, if I just had a view like that, office like that, money like that, health like that, retirement like that, if I just had it, I'd finally be happy. And you forget that there's all these people who have a little better than you are, and they're not happy either. It's this coveting machine. And so when we, when we look at someone else's, right, I wish I, wish I had that person. I wish I owned a house like that person. I wish I had a house like that person. I wish my spouse was like that person's spouse. I wish my kids were like that person's kids. I wish I got recognized like they got recognized. I wish... Did you notice the key word in all that? I. Covening is so deeply selfish. I. Me. You're longing to be satisfied. And it, it's so deeply unloving to our neighbor, and it leads to all sorts of nastiness. Look at James chapter 4. James is unpacking some of the Ten Commandments in this part. He wants us to look at our hearts, James 4.1. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? And your first answer is because those other people are mean, right? That's why, obviously. If it weren't for them, there would be no fights. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you murder. He's not talking about physical murder. He's talking, about a, he's talking about a church community. Remember, we went through this command, anger and rage at other people, devaluing other people, coming and attack at other people because you're coveting on the inside. You have desires unmet. You're lashing out on those things, on other people. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You're supposed to look to God to satisfy you, right? And you ask and do not be received because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God's not going to give you stuff to help you grow in your idolatry, right? <laughs> Verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So you see that so many quarrelings are inflamed from coveting. Uh, over desires exploding out of us. You know, think of the fights over family inheritances. Just devastating. Families broken. They won't talk to each other over the whatever. I've got to have it. And, and just by the way, is anyone happy anymore in that situation? The great irony with coveting it will exhaust you. It will exhaust you. It's never enough. It will break your relationships. It will never make you happy. <laughs> it won't make you happy. So we see here that coveting, it does not love our neighbor. It also dishonors God. Did you notice how James called us adulterous when we're coveting? adulterous because we're supposed to have, we're in a covenant with the lord right we're god's people he's like the husband we're like the bride which means our deepest satisfaction here's what it means our deepest satisfaction is to be him but when we covet we're loving something in a way that only god deserves to be loved we think right this is what your coveting heart tells you to be happy and fulfilled i must have this i must have it What's the only thing that should actually fit in this blank? To be happy and fulfilled, I must have God. I must have him. That's what your heart should be saying. I must have him. But when we put anything else there in its place, now it's a false God. Look how Paul writes about this, Colossians 3, 5. Song of Christians, you got a new heart. You got a new identity in Christ, because you have a new identity in Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now look at this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, here's the point for now, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So you might not set up an altar with a, a silver statue and bow to it, but when you've got this thing in your heart that you must have and you love it more than anything else, you are bowing your life to it, you have an idol set up on the altar of your very heart. And no matter what you claim about who you worship and what religion you're in, God sees the object to which the knee of your heart is bowing. And so, you know, we, we should all know this because we've all done this, right? So I'm a, I'm a pro on this. My, when my heart says, I want this more than you, God, and how do I know I want this thing more than God? When I disobey his commands. That's how I know. And so when I say to God, I must have this, God, I'm also saying to God, 
you're not enough. You're not enough. And I'm worshiping another God, a God that cannot satisfy. And as you see in Colossians 3, 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming because it's not a small sin. Even if nobody saw it, coveting in the heart, you told God he's a terrible God, that he's never enough for you, and that the only way to be happy is to deny him and rebel against him. That's what your heart said. I realize that. I'm, I'm wretched. An idolater of the heart. So I want to see just a couple signs we may be coveting, digging around in my own heart, digging around in yours a little bit. Number one, disobedience in general. Disobedience in general. Why do you repeatedly disobey? Because God is not enough to satisfy you. You must have what he said you shall not have in this way. You're coveting. Second, explosions of anger. We got that from James, didn't we? I can't remember where I read this, but it stuck with me. This author wrote, she said, the real God protects us. We protect our idols. Start. Start pondering that. I'm convinced many explosions of anger are just when you get nasty with your mouth, right? Many explosions of anger are you and I protecting the idols of our hearts. Because see, when you have an idol, you're trying to keep your identity there, your righteousness, your sufficiency, your security. So it's precious to you because your happiness depends on it. So you're just... You're protecting it. And when anybody bumps that or questions that thing, fight or flight, rage, words, our heart roars in this striving to protect the source of our happiness, and our coveting hearts are being exposed. So I want you to ask yourself, if you remember a moment like that, or maybe the next time that occurs, you need to ask yourself, what idol am I protecting right now? How is it that I'm not trusting in the Lord? Because satisfaction in the goodness of God, even in the midst of conflict, leads to peace and gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Because your ultimate security and satisfaction is in God. So disobedience, explosion of anger, bitterness and complaining. Sometimes, you know, complaining's not that bad, right? It's not that bad. Everybody complains. Come on. And then you read the Old Testament, and you're like, God doesn't like complaining. Remember some of those stories? They complained. Poisonous snakes. <laughs> Sometimes, right, our mouths, we're always victims. Everything's awful. We're letting everyone know how bad God is to us. And we would never say it in those words. That's what we're doing. His sovereignty is failing. I just want to be so careful. I am not talking about legitimate grieving. I'm not meaning to talk about that. Life can bring horrible suffering. Godly grief hurts, vocalizes that hurt to God. There's a, there's a good way, there's a good language about complaining in the Psalms. It's not a denial of God. It's just, God, I hurt. You love me. Why are you letting this happen to me? A biblical lamenting and grieving is welcome. It's holy. That's not what I'm talking about. And doesn't your heart know the difference? I'm talking about complaining. God is not good to me. 
I'm bitter at him for giving others what I decided I need and deserve, and I'm just going to voice it out all the time. And we're unthankful for our salvation, for the good gifts God, God has given. We're, we just, we're not even moved by the fact that God has given us himself, and, and God hates our complaining. It's a covenant heart. Number four, zeal for the things of the world along with apathy towards the things of God. That's a coveting heart. Zeal for the things of the world along with apathy towards the things of God. Here's an example, Luke 12, 15. Look at Luke 12, 15. Jesus says to the crowds, take care and be on your guard against all what? You better be awake. It just sneaks in when you're not looking because you want to be happy. Be on your guard against covetousness. And now Jesus tells us this, and, and do any of us believe him? One's life does, what's that key word there? Not consist in the abundance of possessions. <laughs> I mean, how many of you are like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? It does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, your stuff, your accomplishments, what people say about you. It's not your life. That's another way to say, it won't satisfy you. And then the Lord tells a story, and the story is about a man. He's a rich man, and he keeps getting richer, and he's, just, his, he's filled his barns. He's like, what am I going to do now? I filled my barns. I'll build more barns, and I'll fill them up, and then I'll just kick it the rest of my life. Everybody's dream. Don't you want it? Don't you want to win the lottery and buy a big ranch in the beautiful place and just look at the sunset over your own personal pond and soul rest and be merry? Look what Jesus says to our hearts. Verse 20, God said to him, what's the next line? Fool. Fool. Because what's the one ingredient we forgot about? We're all going to die. That's what we forgot. For this night, your soul is required of you. And these things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and here's the key phrase, and is not rich toward God. Now, I am not demeaning anybody buying a house somewhere. I'm not coming against a retirement. But I'm saying what I think Jesus is saying, which is, if all your hopes and energies and passions and dreams go into this world to where the things of God are just down low on the list and we'll get to it when it's convenient, you're a fool and you're coveting. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, we're backing up. It's, it's not delight that's bad. It's not enjoying God's good gifts that's bad. No, those are good. It's a matter of what you love the most and how that shows itself in your life. So when people don't have time for the things of God, reading the Bible, praying, fellowshipping at church, serving, supporting the work of the kingdom, and everything is about the joys and gifts of this life. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I'm kind of religious. And I, it's, it's a, 
That's coveting. Remember our friend Pascal, he told us every choice you make, you do for your happiness, which means the trends of your the trend of your choices, if you're curious, show you what make you happiest. If you want to see, just look. Look at your calendar, look at your budget, look at your time. You'll see. And the question is, what do you love the most? And how does that show itself? Because the things of the world and the things of God are just a leftover. It's a coveting heart. So we've all coveted, haven't we? <laughs> okay. I'm guilty. <clears throat> I'm an idolater of the heart. I have not only broken this command, breaking this command is why I broke all the other commands. And we are just made so aware, aren't we, that the law, the Ten Commandments, it is not a ladder to God. How many rungs have held for us so far? They're all broken. We're 0 for 10 in every way. What do we do? We despair of being good enough for God on our own. It's not possible. Remember, the law is not a ladder to God. It is a mirror exposing our sin and our need for Jesus. And it is also a portrait of the life of Jesus Christ. I love this so much. Think a moment just about how Jesus fulfilled this law, this command. Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on human nature for us and our salvation. And in his human life, he always loved the right thing in the right way. He always loved his father's glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was always willing to give himself up for the good of his neighbor. There's so many ways we could see this, but I want to see it a little differently this morning. I want to read to you from Psalm 16. And yes, first, David is the author, but ultimately, this psalm shows you Jesus. We see this in the New Testament. So look at the heart of Jesus from Psalm 16. It's almost hard to pray it ourselves because it's just so not true. But listen to the heart of Jesus, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to death or let your Holy One see corruption. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is what? Fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. As much joy as you could ever have for as long as you could ever have it in the face of God. That was the heart of Jesus. Oh, so satisfied in his father that he was willing to die for us with the knowledge that the resurrection and joy were on the other side. So think, friends, this is amazing to me. Jesus, so satisfied in his father, was willing to die for us, we who've denied that God could satisfy it all. He was so satisfied 
in his Father, that he died for us, the ones who have denied that God could satisfy it all. What love. And he rose from the dead. He now reigns happily at the right hand of God. And he's going to return. And this will be our situation. Look at Isaiah 51, 11. He bought us with his blood. He ransomed us from our sin. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with what? With singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's will for your life. This will certainly come to pass. He will thrill you forever. You will be happy, church. He wants to make you happy. And you need that. In this life, we're under his sovereign hand. Many things will not make you happy at all. But you know, he's working for our good. He has a purpose. He's accomplishing things, some we know of from his word, some that are mysteries, but one day for sure and absolutely, for all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be happier than you can dream forever. This is God's promise. Do you believe that? Be satisfied in his word. So we, so we see Jesus fulfilling this. And then as that psalm, Psalm 16, it's first his. Now through faith in him, it becomes ours. You're not going to let me rot away forever. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. God, like Jesus was satisfied in you, I want to be satisfied in you. I want to move that direction. So now let's think about how we follow Jesus in keeping this command. Do not covet. First way to do that, identify true satisfaction and live accordingly. You have to do this with your heart. Identify true satisfaction and live accordingly. You're going to see the right commercial or the right thing, and you're going to be like, oh, right? I need it. You've got to talk to yourself. Self, do you remember what true satisfaction is? Look at Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Treasure. What do you like about treasure? It makes you happy. That's what you like about treasure. All the ways it can make you happy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he does two things. What's the first thing he does? He sells all he has. Second thing, he buys that field. What does that mean? That means you're, I mean, think of it like this. Your arms are full of things of this world to be happy in. And you see, now Jesus has shown you true treasure. And so it's like the way sometimes they, they actually capture monkeys in Africa. They'll make a trap and the monkey reaches his hand in and he, he grabs this nut or whatever it is, and then because he's holding it, he can't get it out. And so sometimes he will stay there to his impending death because he won't let go of this treasure. 
That, that just, that's kind of like this. You're, you're holding the treasures of this world, and Jesus says, to have me, you've got to let go in a way to where you're saying, this is, this is not my life anymore, and you're going to cling to Jesus. And so the question is, right, that question, the edge of that cliff, can I let go? But when you see what Jesus is worth, you sell all that you have. It's not literal necessarily. You sell all that you have. This, is, this doesn't own me anymore, and you cling to him. He's my treasure. That's what saving faith does. Jesus is my treasure. Number two, foster an ambitious contentment. Here's what I mean. Look at 1 Timothy 6.6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So for Paul, gain means this is awesome. This is the inheritance. This is joy. This is the good stuff. And the, the way to enjoy the good stuff in this life, godliness with contentment. What's godliness? It's a zeal for God and his ways, right? I mean, you, you love God. It's a zeal for God and his ways. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? And half of us are like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I had to look in the dictionary. Enjoying peaceful happiness because you know that good is coming. Look what Paul says. Here's another one it'll be hard to believe. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. You guys even believe this, verse 8? If we have food and clothing with these... We will be content. Come on, your heart is saying, no way. No way. Far as I can tell, every single one of you has these. And if you don't, come see us. We will give it to you. We have no reason to not be content. And we're almost never content. What is wrong? We're coveting. We're not looking for the deepest satisfaction in the right places. Again, this is not about being apathetic. It's not about not having ambition. It's not about not trying to grow your business or improve your lot in life. Those things can all be biblical. It's not about succeeding as much as you can so that you can give and glorify God and all the rest. No, it's not about any of that. Paul is an incredibly ambitious person. But did you see the flip? Before conversion, a picture of contentment was, I'm all about this world, and the things of God are like, huh. The flip is now, I'm all about the kingdom of God, and I can be content with my lot in this world. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to pursue contentment. And then the last one, love your neighbor generously. One reason we can't love our neighbor, and we've seen it in James and other passages, is because we're so consumed with our own lack of satisfaction in the Lord, right? Why do we quarrel? Why do we fight? Coveting. Why are we distant? Heart problems. The more, the more you find satisfaction in Christ and what he's done for you, the more free you are, right, 
to love your neighbor, even when it's messy, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. I am not a pro at this, but it makes sense, right? If you were, if you were safe, if you were joyful in God and what you had, you'd be more inclined to love your neighbor. So in Exodus, we read, don't covet your neighbor's possession, stuff, etc." Look, look at Romans 12, 15. Just one nugget on what it means to love your neighbor. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Isn't that the opposite of coveting? Someone is rejoicing in something great. And maybe you had a terrible day, or maybe you don't have that thing they're rejoicing in. It'd be so easy to be like, ugh, you know. But now with satisfaction in the Lord, you can actually love this person to this greater depth where you can say, because I have what I need in Christ, I can rejoice with them as they rejoice. Moreover, I'll even have a great day, and if somebody else is mourning, it doesn't bring me down. That's not the way I talk about this. Oh, you're just bringing me down. Oh, no, I have what I need. I can go down into the depths with you. I can rejoice. I can weep because I'm satisfied in Jesus. It enables love, doesn't it? So church, wow, to see the law of God. I hope we've been humbled by our own sin. I hope we've been amazed by the beauty of Jesus, the only one who did this. I hope we're so thankful that he died for us and that in the power of his resurrection, as we put our faith in him, we can have this law written on our hearts and we can start to live it out. So let's repent of our covetousness, find our satisfaction in the work of Christ and the contentment he brings, and let's be ambitious for his kingdom as we love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great promises to satisfy us. And here in this broken world, as our hearts hurt, as we long for things, as we grieve things, as we fight even our sinful desires, Lord, let us delight fundamentally in you alone and your promises to us. Let us abide in you, trust in you, follow the way of Jesus who looked to you, who knew you were at his right hand, that he would see pleasures forever. Let us trust and believe him, and Lord, and as we do that, let us take joy in obeying you, in loving our neighbor, for your glory, for our satisfaction in you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.